Did I miss any blanks, Lee? Significance. They did not understand the signs' significance. I really I was tempted. I avoided significance, but three B is confidence. So ignorance, confidence, or self-confidence. They think they can do what God requires. They think they can do what God. Requires. Okay. Any questions about the five verses or so we covered this morning? If not, we can talk about the seeker-sensitive movement. <laughs> no, this this passage really is. Oh, Alex in the back. This passage really is quite helpful in that issue. Yeah. So, I agree with your statement that they, the crowd didn't ask the right question Mm -hmm. they were asking about work but at the same time i'm glad that they asked the wrong question for my sake (laughs) (laughs) because when you hear jesus say you know work for the bread that doesn't perish like you in in my mind anyway i think oh that means we need to go do more ministry we need to go do these other things but the question helps clarify that yes well, there's, like I said, there's similarity between them and the woman at the well. The woman at the well misunderstands Jesus is talking about spiritual water. Just like the woman at the well, when she finally gets, he's talking about a food that makes you never hunger or thirst. Just as she says, give me this water always that I may not have to come out here. They say that they're, they're going to say the same thing. Give us this bread always. There's some ser- serious similarities. And Jesus is, is being patient. Jesus is revealing truth with their misunderstandings. But since we know their ultimate end point is unbelief, marking it along the way, it's, it's both. As You're right, I'm thankful. Their wrong question allowed Jesus to give a right answer. Absolutely. Yet there is a sense of tragedy in their, their arc as they're moving towards grumbling and going home. So, amen. Amen. Okay. Other questions or thoughts on this? Greg Sweets. Well, I'm just glad uh, to observe that since the time of the two million that came out of Egypt and the the time of the people that were following Jesus, that we've got so much smarter. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. Amen. No, if, if we're not reading those stories, seeing ourselves there, if we think, man, I would have not grumbled. You're kidding yourself. Um, you're kidding yourself. Oh, and I was just noticing this the other day. I, I woke up with some lower back pain like three weeks ago, and it was really had my attention, as back pain usually does. And I was praying, and I was worried about it. And the Lord has made it mostly go away, and I, I have hardly thought to be thankful for it. And then I realized, like, that was really on my mind <laughs> when, when I had it. And now that it's gone, rather than being like, I'm so thankful, you know, um, I just move on to other things. We, we presume upon so much grace. Yeah. Okay, any other? Okay, let's talk about the seeker-sensitive movement for a little bit. Um, the seeker-sensitive movement was a big deal in like the 80s and 90s. And has anyone ever heard of that, the seeker-sensitive movement? Okay. Um, and it's, it's, 
it's a mixture of some minorly, minorly bad theology, nothing like heresy, but some bad practice. Um, and, but it comes from a good desire, at least in its best instances. The good desire would be that more people come to know the Lord Jesus, that, that more um, people who are unsaved might come to faith. It's a great desire. And so it was really sort of spearheaded by Bill Hibbles or Hybels, however you want to say his name. Hybels? Okay. Um, who built upon the back of Robert Schuller, the uh, Crystal Cathedral guy. Um, and it really, to some degree, even Rick Warren and his purpose of life sort of piggybacked off of that. So the basic mentality with the seeker sensitive movement in its best instance is this. The most important thing is that people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So the entire church service is built around that one goal. Then you figure out in your community what people are interested in, what they want. If they want an encouraging message, put together an encouraging message. If they want a, a, a professional light show and audio visual, hey, and I'm, not, and I'm not trying to straw man, if that's what it takes to get people to the kingdom, then let's spend some money on some lights and on you know quality production. So in the seeker sensitive movement, you've got a high, high value and premium on aesthetics, professional quality, um, professional quality of the sound, audio, video. You've got shorter messages because unbelievers don't generally have larger attention spans. And you got sort of a, you, you got um, sort of a, a very narrow focused message every week that really just homed in as a gospel presentation. Um, you got excellent coffee, usually excellent services, the children's ministry. You could tell money went into it. Like when I went to, when I went to Rick Warren's church one Sunday, because when I was in seminary, they, they required in one of our pastoral ministry classes that we choose to attend a service significantly different than what we're used to. The, I, Rick Warren's church is located near Disneyland. I swear the same level of, of aesthetics and production quality for the um, campus that Disneyland. Has anyone ever been to Disneyland? You just know how well done thematically everything is. Rick Warren's church, the same thing. And I'm not saying this is fundamentally necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, it's an indication of where the values are. The value is on a premium aesthetics. And it was themed. You went to the youth area, it had a Hawaii... Um, luau theme with a tiki hut and it was well done it was not some chintzy thing they, they dropped some money on this their coffee bar is amazing um it was no i'm just i'm just saying it was professional like if you ever sometimes cringe at christian things looking halfway done and and, and the, the, it was amazing off the charts the uh and the, so the focus is on getting these decisions for christ for the seekers and you want to not drive them away. And so if there's anything we can do to get them through the door, anything we can do to um, draw them in, um, we'll do that. And the notion was we're going to flex as much as we can. We're not going to sin, but we're going to flex as much as we can so that we can get these seekers into our churches and we're going to just try to get them saved. And, and everything gets focused on that one emphasis. Now that is, is, maybe it could be said better, but I'm trying to do a fair job of what the value is, what the thought process behind it is. Um, anyone want to take a stab at why that might, uh, might not be a, a biblical notion of how to order? <laughs> okay, Patty. Okay, okay, okay. I don't want to take a stab at it, but the first verse that comes to my mind is, there's none that seeketh after God, no, not one. God's the seeker. So how can they say they're really seeking? Right. 
First, yeah, first off, the Bible identifies one seeker, and it's God. In John 4, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So, so the notion of seekers is a strange notion. Yes. Um, next stab at it. Lee? Well, I think a lot of what I've heard of from this kind of, that kind of ministry is that it's yeah. very positive, which means they're going to leave like half the gospel off. We don't want to make people feel bad or feel guilty. So let's just yes. leave that sin part. Be really a great person. Come on in yes. and be part of the kingdom. So let me, let me pause. You're, you're absolutely right. The reason I didn't mention that is I'm trying to picture the secret sensitive movement in its best case. And in its best case, they'd say, we don't want to do that. Now, what tends to happen is in that desire to flex, we got to talk about sin. What is the least offensive way we could faithfully talk about sin? And you're going to find yourself not using biblical terms pretty quickly. Um, when we talk about our misdeeds, our lapses in judgment, it's a slippery slope down to, well, I mean, Robert Shuler, who started this whole thing, ultimately, Bill Heibel is built off the back of him. Robert Shuler's the guy who wrote that sin is negative self-esteem, negative self-thought. And so really, when the Bible talks about sin, it means you doubting yourself and it doubting your ability. And now, that's, Bill Hybels doesn't take that nonsense on, but I'm saying that the, the foundational guru of this type of thinking, Schuler, he wrote the book, The New Reformation, and that was his thesis, that, that sin is negative thinking about yourself, which is the spirit of the age, no doubt, but um, it's, it's hard to defend that biblically um, as the heart and marrow of sin. But I... The, the, there are people doing this who would say they're not doing it. It's not necessary. That tends to happen. You're absolutely right. That tends to happen. But it's not mission critical. I, I could imagine seeker-sensitive churches that are still faithfully preaching on sin. But your point that, yeah, if, if the desire is let's not do the slightest thing more than we have to, we don't want to drive someone away for any other reason, which means doctrine gets downplayed. Because anything that's... Well, doctrine divides. So... If, if we teach one way or the other, say in election predestination, we might alienate some people. And we want people coming through the doors. We want them making decisions for Christ. So we just won't teach about that at all. And, and, and the rationale makes sense. If teaching eschatology, taking a position on pre-trib, post-trib, whatever, is going to potentially drive some people out, we're not going to teach on that because the most important thing is that they hear the gospel and make a decision for Jesus. And so everything serves that ultimate goal. And so you start shaving things off. Who's next? Oh, Caleb, then Tim. Okay. But at least we're not talking about boats, so this is good. Isn't the purpose of the like corporate church to raise up believers, not to uh, convert people to Christianity? Give this man 50 points. When you get 100, you get a cup of coffee. Um, but, oh, oh, sorry. Your wife would like um, to say something. Next question. Uh, next question, if I answered, do I get another 50 points? <laughs> if it's as good of an answer, Caleb, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me repeat that before Maggie goes. It, I, the fundamental objection I would have to such a mentality is, as we read our Bibles, the purpose of our Sunday morning gatherings is not primarily the conversion of unbelievers. It's not. I'll back that up biblically in just a second. That is not our central point of gathering. And so everything the seeker-sensitive movement is doing makes a sort of sense if you assume the number one purpose for gathering on Sunday morning is that in that gathering, unbelievers might come to faith. I don't think, biblically, that is the fundamental reason we're gathering. Maggie. I was just going to say, um, I feel like from what I understand from 
you know, what the Bible says about corporate worship and then also how it's uh, like kind of broken down in the Westminster Confession, stuff like that, is that the main reason that we are, have, you know, come together as a church is to worship God. Yes. Period. So everything else is going to fall yes. after that. So if you have that as the main thing, that's the main purpose. Yes. Like, yeah. anyway. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Tim. I forgot I had this for a second. Uh, having been a part of one of those churches, and again, the, the message is inherently, it's not wrong, it's not blasphemous, but what we noticed is it fosters an environment of the leadership cell and then immature Christians. Yeah. There's no building of leadership, there's no maturity progression, yeah. and that has such a ripple effect. And like you said, the church we belong to, I'll leave the name out, but uh, I was in another state, but... Um, it it just literally switched overnight to to this uh, to this doctrine, and they were emulating themselves after a, a mega church, and that lent itself to young leaders, immature leaders being appointed that were teaching things that were not scripturally mm. okay, healings mm. and 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 all this yeah. other stuff, and yeah. and ultimately heavy 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 Armenianism. Uh, in other words, you know, there's no there's no value. Not Armenian. It's Armin. You got to get that I. Armin. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Armenians are our friends. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that clarification. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah. But really uh, putting no value on the sovereignty of yeah. God and, and, again, not wanting to dive into that subject because it can't, they saw it as divisive. So right. uh, there's a lot of, it, it just from our perception, there was a lot of dangerous things that spawned yeah. out of just trying to teach a seeker-friendly message. Yeah. 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 Oh, Zeb's going to weigh in now. This will be good. So yeah, about the boat. Um, no, I was. <laughs> no, um, the the biggest the big problem as I see seeker sensitive. Um, the foundational issue is that it is it starts with a flawed anthropology, a flawed understanding of humanity. Yeah. Um, primarily, they just straight up ignore huge swaths of scripture, specifically like Romans three. Um, starting in 10, uh, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Not a few people seek for God, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the the foundational presuppositions of the seeker-sensitive movement are entirely flawed. Like, there is no... There is no seeker aside from the one seeker, which is God. And ironically, the seeker-sensitive movement tends not to be overly sensitive to him. So let me let me try to let's let's read some passages. Go to First Corinthians fourteen. From First Corinthians fourteen and Ephesians four, I would argue um, there's two purposes in our corporate gatherings. Maggie's hit on one: worshiping God, and the other, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, if I could dare use a sports analogy, we're not, we're not running the plays here. We're prepping and equipping and training so that you all, we all, can run the plays throughout the week. This is the huddle. This is training, equipping, and worship. Um, so First Corinthians 14, in the context of dealing with speaking in tongues, which I'm not going to get caught up into at the moment, um, Paul does give us some insight into the purpose and function of the local church. Verse 20, My brothers, do not be children in your thinking, 
be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and with lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? Now, my only point in bringing this up is this. Paul does not assume outsiders or unbelievers are entering. They're welcome to enter. They may enter. What does that tell me? The primary purpose of our Sunday morning gatherings is not that the unbeliever enter. Now, we want to take that into consideration. We, we don't want to make things unnecessarily hard. But Paul is saying it's, it's ancillary. They might. Perhaps they will. What does that tell you? That's not the primary focus, right? Does that make that click? That makes sense? So Paul will consider the potential of an unbeliever entering, and, and praise God, they're welcome. If you're an unbeliever here today, you're welcome. We didn't plan our Sunday morning service around fundamentally what would please you. We, you know, we plan our fundamental service fundamentally around what God requires and what would please him. So go to Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, we are told, um, oh, start in verse 10. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave, so Christ in his ascension made, gave gifts, He's, which is the citation of Psalm 68. He gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So he gave gifted people. What was the function of these gifted people he gave the church? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So as a pastor teacher, I'm not a minister by that. I'm a minister by virtue of being a Christian, as are you. I'm an equipper by virtue of being a pastor teacher. The work of the ministry belongs to all the saints, and there are some gifted people given to the church to equip that work. It's, the grammar here is critical. The evangelists, the pastors, the shepherd, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which he then renames, which is the building up of the body of Christ. Then he gives us the degree until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, negatively, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How do we do this? What is, how do we accomplish the work of ministry? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The work of the ministry is each and every one of us, joints, ligaments, sinew, muscles, speaking the truth in love to ourselves, building ourselves up in love. That, that's the work of the ministry, the building of the body of Christ. And we do that through words, whether they're loving words of rebuke, loving words of encouragement, loving words of sympathy, loving words of, of grief, with other people. Oh, there's so many ways we can speak the truth and love to each other. But that, that's 
what we're training to do. Now, evangelism is another way of building the church up because you're expanding the church and you're speaking the gospel and love to your neighbor. Amen. But the, the total project, this gets back to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not convert, but make disciples of the peoples. Part of making disciples of the peoples is the conversion, no doubt. That's, where, that's the portion that Jesus says, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then he also says, teaching them to observe all that I command you. So the full package commission is not just getting people to make decisions for Jesus, but building them up in the faith. That's what this is. So we gather to worship the Lord as he calls on us to do so. He gives us our marching orders of what we're to do. And our focus is beyond that in our fellowship with each other, building each other up in love, speaking the truth and love to ourselves. And in that context, if an unbeliever wants to walk in, God bless them. And, and if there are things that we could do that would not make that difficult, it's one of the reasons we don't meet at three in the morning, right? Um, we choose a time that's convenient. <laughs> um, it's one of the reasons we make sure we have some extra seats. We don't have assigned seating anymore, praise God. Um, no, because when we were doing our assigned seating, could an unbeliever just walk in and have a seat? No. They didn't RSVP. No, you, you, so how quickly you forget, Lee. How quickly you forget. Yeah, yeah. There was a season where during COVID, we were RSVPing. But now we got some extra seats. Like, awesome. But our focus is not fundamentally about unbelievers walking in. Um, the, the, the weakness is if you do that, what, if I were to critique the seeker sensitive movement further, in there, and again, I, want, I don't want to credit it to bad motives, in a zeal to win souls, instead of just following the instructions, you so put a premium on good speakership that you start to value professional oratory speaking ability above virtually anything else. So you, you prioritize a leader, not necessarily because he's wise, not necessarily because he's godly, not necessarily because he knows his Bible, but because he is a captivating speaker. Or, to, to play my hand, he's an Apollos, not a Paul. And you don't end up ever teaching any substantive doctrine in the worship service, because if there's anything seekers choke on, it's doctrine. So why would you do that when you just got to keep preaching the gospel, keep preaching the gospel, keep preaching the gospel? And so when you ask them, well, where does the deeper teaching take place? Well, they say in the small groups. And so what you end up with is the people with the least training, with full-time vocational jobs, tasked with the job of teaching the doctrine, where the guy with the most training who's freed up is teaching things that go to, go to Hebrews 5. I'll let the Apostle Paul bring, I mean, he, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, so... I'll let the octor, there we go, um, bring the rebuke. Um, um, the German word for author, sorry. Um, sorry. In, in, when, in commentaries in the book of Hebrews, they'll refer to octor, they mean author. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, that, that's all. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be using guild speak. Fair enough. Um, um, okay, verse 11 of Hebrews 5. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... 
You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice from distinguishing good from evil. If I could be so bold, the goal of most seeker-sensitive services is that the guy with the most training and the most freedom is teaching things that new converts should be able to teach. Oh, they wouldn't do it as slickly. Oh, they wouldn't do it as winsomely, as professionally. But the actual content should be teachable by anyone who's been a Christian for a couple months. I mean, in that anyone who's been a Christian for a couple months ought to be able to communicate the gospel. He, he tells us what the doctrines are. Look at chapter 6. Therefore, leave us, let us leave behind the elementary, doctrine, elementary doctrines of Christ. What are those? And go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. See, Dave Lample's class was elemental teaching. <laughs> Part of it. I don't think they went into as much detail. No, just, no, that list of elementary teachings is quite, like, good grief. The author of Hebrews is assuming, set that bar. The author of Hebrews is saying, anyone who's been a Christian for a couple months or a year or so, Ought to be able to do some, I'll just make it a Sunday school lesson. It doesn't have to be a 52-week series. A Sunday school lesson, any one of those topics. And I'd hope that if you're in this room, you've been a Christian for a while, you could, if you had some time to prep, put together a you know, junior high lesson on washings, judgment, resurrection of the dead, repentance from God, faith towards God. Yeah. And so by putting such a premium on winsome homiletical communicative abilities that the Bible doesn't. Paul actually has to rebuke the Corinthians because, man, they love Apollos because he's got rhetorical flair and flourish. When he tells a joke, people laugh. They don't groan. And Paul freely admits he stutters, he trembles. And Paul, ins- let's, let's end up there, 1 Corinthians 3. Um, yeah, the other danger, I think, of the seeker-sensitive movement and, and of the whole like multi-site megachurch movement is it in practice teaches in practice denies what Paul says in first Corinthians three. And, and you know, there may be some edge cases that I'm not going to speak to, but in the main secret sensitive movement and the whole multi-site church movement, I think denies in practice what Paul says here. Um, quick overview of where Paul's come in first Corinthians one. He, he starts out by rebuking their factions um, if you look at chapter 1, verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that every one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified over you, for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? First observation, these are not doctrinal divisions. They're personality, ministry-style divisions. Why do I say that? If these were doctrinal divisions, the I'm of Christ group would win. How can the I'm of Christ group not win? It's, it's about style. It's about cult of personality. We don't follow. You can picture it. You, know. you might be following the Apostle Paul's teaching or Peter's teaching. I just followed Jesus. I'm a red-letter person myself. You know. Yeah, it's nonsense. Um, so this is style. This isn't doctrine. People have sometimes used things like this to try to argue against doctrine. I'm of Calvin. I'm of Hermit. No. These are, these are, that's not what's going on here. These are not doctrinal divisions. And it becomes clear when Paul narrows it down to I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, which is where this is going to get narrowed down to. 
Um, and Paul is already going to start having some things to say about wise words. The, the Greek is literally Sophia, wise, logos. Sophia, logos. And as best as we can tell, Sophia, logos is rhetoric. Christ did not send me, verse 17, to baptize, um, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the power of Christ, the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. And then he goes on to the word of Christ is folly. Then he goes on to um, rebuking. It's not like orators and wise people got saved. Verse 20, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Down to 26. Don't you realize that God chose the nobodies and the nothings by and large to save? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. So Paul's next point is God didn't choose the slick, professional, winsome, impressive people. So what makes you think it's going to be the slick, impressive, winsome people that are going to really sell the gospel? Have you not noticed the trend of God choosing the nothings and the nobodies, by and large? Then he gets on in chapter 2. He admits he is not winsome in speech. When I came to you, brothers, verse 1, chapter 2, I did not come proclaiming to the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, Sophia Lagos but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul is intentionally doing ministry in such a way that you don't say, man, that Paul, he is a really good speaker. So bring that to a head then in chapter three. In verse three, you're still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So we've, we've stripped down the Peter and the Jesus, and we're down to two people. There's a group of people that like Apollos. We know from Apollos in the book of Acts, even from him speaking there, he is a, he is a powerful speaker. And Paul has no beef with Apollos on that account. That's how God made Apollos. That's how he's gifted. That's fine. The problem is on the Corinthians, you think. And you can picture this. We, we can do the same thing. Man, man, when Apollos starts teaching, that's when people get saved. Whew. Oh, man, when Apollos is teaching. And again, this is not about it is completely valid to critique or to disapprove of a speaker because their teaching's off, their doctrine's wrong, or their personal life is out of sorts. This is purely about style, homiletics, delivery. And what Paul says here smashes down all such nonsense. Verse 5, what is Apollos? What is Paul? What is the guy who has eloquent wisdom? And what is the guy who stutters when he speaks? Servants or slaves through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered. What that means is, read the book of Acts, Paul is the church planting missionary of the church at Corinth. He planted. Apollos is tending to those converts of Paul. He's watering. Okay? I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
few plants and he waters her one and each will receive his wage according to his labor. There is a measurement that you can measure servants. It's how faithfully and hard they work. Their labor can differentiate them. One servant might be laboring far more intensely than the other. What that means is, pick your, pick your favorite preacher. I'll list some of my favorite. John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, come back from the dead, whatever. There is no reason to think, there's, in fact, there's reason to not think, that if they were to show up on a Sunday morning and preach a sermon, that there be any more growth, any more conversions, any more spiritual impact than any of our leaders here faithfully teaching as well, given their own limitations. That's what he's saying. And so this notion that somehow, um, it, please don't you dare ever think I make things grow. I will. The most I can be faithful is in watering and in laboring. God makes things grow. And so when you focus, getting back to the secret sense of movement, when you really prioritize a guy or a speaker who's just really good, and, and we have our own metrics of communication and our own metrics of speaking ability, and we can find people that are really good and they're personal, they've got a liking, likey smile, and they're good at telling stories, and they don't talk too long, and, and all of that, right? I mean, just look at the criteria for talk show hosts or the evening news or other things. Like we, have, we have canons and metrics, and the seeker-sensitive movement prioritizes such things because in their rationale, we want the unbeliever to come, and we want the unbeliever to listen and not tune out. The problem is 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3 rebuke such thinking. The reason why I said initially, and Zeb's picked up on this, that there's a minor doctrinal difference, I do think your understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation, I do think what people refer to as Calvinism and Arminianism, is, plays a role. Because Paul is assuming here, if God gives the growth, then it's not that somehow I made that argument, somehow I persuaded you, somehow I showed enough love and I showed enough compassion and and, and I gave such a good answer that I overcame their stubborn. No, it's about God working in hearts. As he said in chapter one, consider your calling. God chose, God chose, God chose, God chose. So in John three, we learned that the new birth is the spirit of God applying the word of God in men's hearts. And unless you're born of the spirit, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. So then my thinking is the best thing I can do is I can't, the wind blows where he wants to blow. I can't make the wind blow anywhere. I can get the seed out, make the seed present, in the hopes that the Holy Spirit will apply the seed. But if that's the critical issue, then it's not about that really good illustration. And trust me, this makes me sleep easy. If I didn't believe this, I would torment myself thinking, man, if I just said it this way instead of that way, if I just added that extra point, if I just didn't go over two minutes, if I just didn't tell that corny. No, I'm... I'm I praise God that no one is going to hell because I made up a couple of words. But no, no. But if, understand, if the decisive factor was not the sovereignty of God and the moving of his spirit, those would be completely reasonable and rational fears. What if, what if, what if I just said it better, more clearly? What if I'd been a slightly better prepared? What if, what if I just took another minute with him? What if I, what if I, what if I, if, if the growth depends on me, 
And then the, think of the thing for pride. You, you, you do a message and five people come to faith and you're like, I made that happen. I did that, right? Gre- Greg, hold on a sec. Who's, who's, who wants to say, who's up next? And then Greg. It is I. Oh, it is I. Nice. I wanted, while we got, kind of got back to the seeker-sensitive movement, I had a thought or a critique of it that I absolutely insist on. Um, that's the nice, no, 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 it's sort of paradoxical. The niceness, the, the nicety of the, speak, the seeker-sensitive movement. We live in a, a far more physically comfortable time now, and we have easier lives in many ways, and, and it seems to be such an impetus on everyone to be nice to everyone else all the time. Don't think... And I think the seeker-sensitive movement falls into this. Don't think that speaking of sim, sin, your sin or someone else's sin, in the least offensive possible way, does anything good. It robs people of their love and for and joy in Christ. Um, until we understand our own sin, that can't happen. Uh, Luke 7, um, Jesus telling a parable to uh, Simon uh, the debt collector, and he forgave two men's debts. One owed just a little bit, and one owed a whole lot. And, you know, who loved, him, who loved more because of that? Well, the one who right. owed a lot. Right. Unless we confront our own sin, you can't really have that kind of love and joy in Christ. So the idea that by being nice or glossing over or justifying, really hot topic these days, there's a lot of ways you can justify someone's sin. Oh, it wasn't really your fault. You know, it wasn't that bad. You had disadvantages, you know. There's so many ways you can do that. You rob them of their joy in Christ because the kind of, the, the moments when we're most thankful and, and, and give most glory for God, the moments that bring tears to your eyes and stop your breath are the moments when you realize just how sinful you are mm. and that God is forgiving that. So don't, let, don't fall into this trap of thinking that like, oh, if we're really nice about how we talk about other people's sin, that that will somehow be less hurtful for them or, or will be a greater good for them. No, no, no. The, the first, first recorded word of John the Baptist, repent, right? You're sinful, you need to repent. So, so glossing over sin does not lead to greater joy or love in Christ. And it's a terrible thing that in sort of trying to be more nice, we gloss over the very source of so much of our joy. Let me make a necessary addition as well. I will insist upon it. No. The danger can be if we so overcome. We're not going to be secret sensitive. We're actually just going to be jerks. Um, we need to be nice, not because people get saved for nice, but I'm being disobedient if I'm not. And let me use a more biblical word. I need to be kind, patient, gentle. Right? Um, those are biblical terms, right? And woe unto me if I'm not. Um, I just rejoice that no one's going to hell if I have a bad day. I'm going to be judged for having a bad day, and I'm a jerk. No one's no one's eternal salvation is going to perish because I was a jerk one day. I'm going to suffer judgment for that. So no, yeah, abs- amen. The the well, this is why. What do you think the first practice churches drop when they're concerned about this? It's church discipline. Why? What will repel the unbeliever more quickly than that? Oh yeah. And so, if your number one concern is we want to be nice. You're never going to deal with sin. Um, and I, I've had these conversations with church leaders of other churches and just they're like, oh, that wouldn't be loving. Like, I, 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 <laughs> I, I won't name anyone to protect the guilty, but I, I had a guy and we were talking Matthew 18 and, and I said, what do you guys do with that? And he said to me, 
well, we don't take such a legalistic view of it as you do. I, no, no, no. I said, okay, so how do you take it then? How do you take it? No, and there was nothing. There was nothing. I said, fine, you reject my legalistic take. What do you think it says? What do you think Jesus is telling you to do? And he had nothing. Yeah. Um, so, Greg Rolak. What distinction, uh, if any, can you make between our normal, you know, Lord's Day gathering and other ministries of the church, say, Awanas or Adventure Club sure. and VBS coming up? We are not free to not meet on the Lord's Day. God commands us to do that. Hebrews tells us not to forsake it. We're free to do whatever other ministry we want. So Awana is not mandated by Scripture. We are free to do Awana. It's a way of carrying out some of the mandates of Scripture. And other churches can do it differently. Our, our Bible studies and our small groups, these are all things we're free to do, as it seems good to us. And we, can, we could scrap them and go back to a Sunday evening service. Um, we have a tremendous amount of freedom of how to approach those things. And so there's a sense in which we want to do Awana differently, fine. But when it comes to Sunday morning, like, we didn't make this up. This is something we've been told to do, and what is required of stewards is that they be faithful. We need to fundamentally be obedient. Has God told us how he wants us to gather on Sunday morning? Let's start there, figure out what he says, and do that. And with all sorts of other things, we have tremendous freedom. We can design Awana however we want to do it. If we want to, I mean, if someone wanted to play 20 minutes of cartoons first, you know, edifying cartoons, I might not think it's a good idea. The Bible would permit it because we made up a want. Want is our thing. And so we can do with it what we want as long as we don't violate biblical commands. Um, and we can talk about the relative wisdom or, or folly of it, but there's no like passage of scripture you're violating if you do that. But when it comes to Sunday morning, we're, we're told what to do when we gather. Uh, and Paul in Corinthians has a lot of rebukes for how they gather and what they do do when they gather. And they're doing it wrong when they gather. Um, starting in chapter 10, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For you go ahead and one eats and one gets drunk and another goes without food. And so Paul has absolute commands and expectations for the corporate gatherings. That, so that would be my distinction. Like we can make a wanna within general biblical commands and frameworks any way we want. An hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. What age groups? We, we can decide all of that. We're free. Chris. No, peripherally, we've touched on this a little bit in a few different ways, but I just want to really put kind of a fine point on it. Um, in all of the things that are being sacrificed as ministries in the name of evangelism in the seeker-sensitive movement, it looks to me like there is a real threat that the one thing that all their eggs are in the basket of is also actually not being done the way it's supposed to be done yeah. so that we could say, well, as long as we get to that final point of, of converting believers, everything else is worth it that we lose. But if you're not actually truly converting believers, right. then you've added insult to injury. And I think that's really what we're looking at when we talk about the way they've meddled with the message in a sense yeah. that uh, if the law is perfect converting the soul, if we say, well, we don't want the law because that keeps people from showing up, well, then maybe there's a threat that you're not converting the soul. So all of this has been lost yeah. for nothing. 
I'll, I'll tell the story about the concert you and I went to when we were in California. Um, a band I liked at the time. I, I didn't know it at the time, but this one little five-minute gospel presentation by the singer turned me off from them forever. I, it was no conscious decision. I just stopped listening to them. Um, it was Third Day. I used to really like Third Day. I got no beef with Third Day, but they got to the point in their concert where they were going to give their gospel presentation. And what the singer said was, um, we're not here to get you from one to ten. We're here to get you from like two to two and a half or three. And what he meant was, because, and I understand the, the background, because you're not viewing salvation as either the spirit gives life and blind eyes are opened and deaf ears are unstopped. There's a binary nature that I see in, in salvation. Um, there are those who are dead and those who are alive. There are those who see and those who are blinded. There are those who have deafened their ears and have stoned hearts and, and, and the spirits birthed or they're not birthed. But if you view salvation as purely a human decision and that only, then just like a fisherman, no, no I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to slander this position. But if you think that, then a skilled fisherman doesn't just yank, lest you rip the hook out. You want to set the hook and bring them in slowly. So, if this is entirely a matter of persuasion, I'm going to go really slow. I'm not going to challenge you. I'm just going to give you nudge you a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further and that's what this guy was saying consequently there wasn't really a clear gospel presentation to your point because he was far more concerned that he not scare anyone off so we're just going to go from we're not going from one to ten we're going to go from two to two and a half or three and that it's perfectly consistent with the premise that salvation is entirely and only a matter of persuading a human will um, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to anything that might scare the fish away while you're fishing for men, anything that might offend them, anything that might trouble them. We're just going to, what, what could be more important than their salvation? So let's get rid of that. As though the Lord told us we had to figure it out ourselves how to do this. And this gets again back to like, are we going to be faithful and obedient? Or are we going to try to be innovators? Um, so I, I don't want to impinge the motives of people. I think well-intentioned people who need to just, could you just do what you were told to do? <laughs> could you just try to be faithful to the instruction book and do that? Uh, but well-intentioned innovators end up actually undercutting the very thing they want to do. Um, Greg wants to have the final word. I'll stick around and chat. We're at time. So, Greg, close us out, man. Never mind. This statement gonna... is deserve, true and deserving of full acceptance. <laughs> well, you'll get to it when we get to chapter 12. But you read chapter 12, 36 and 37 regarding how many signs were done, yet they didn't believe. Yeah. I just figured we could read the rest of that section and, and, and see how it relates to our next time, present Greg, discussion. Next time. Next time. God bless everybody. Have a good day. Um, I'll uh, stick around and chat some more. <laughs>